Welcome back to Gone Mobile. This episode's being recorded on October 1st, 2014. So, John, my co-host John had a last-minute scheduling conflict tonight, so I'm flying solo for this one, but but I'm very excited to, to welcome Troy Hunt to the show. Hey, Troy, thanks for chatting tonight. Or I guess it's uh, the morning over there. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, Greg. So, uh, I'm coming to you from the future. Uh, it is 11 o'clock in the morning in Australia at the moment. So, uh, And the, the future, let me say, looks very nice down here, too. I look forward to it. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, with you on the show, we're gonna we're gonna talk about security here, which is pretty much uh, what you're well known for around the community. And I mean, security is always a big topic. It gets a lot of attention, especially when things go wrong and the the media picks up on it. But it it always, at least to me, seems like um, it doesn't get quite the same amount of attention from the engineering side uh, when it comes to things like mobile apps and APIs. And it seems like this is starting to to change a little bit, but um, it, it hasn't seemed to get the same level of scrutiny in the past as, uh, as say, uh, web applications. Uh, have you found that as well? Look, I just think in, in general, you could probably apply that statement across all the different various technology stacks where security doesn't tend to get a lot of focus uh, full stop, at least not until something goes wrong and then suddenly it's the most important thing in the world. But I, I do agree insofar as it, it probably doesn't get as much attention in the mobile space uh, and I think there are a few reasons for that, not least of which is that w- when we're talking about API security in mobile, it's just that's, that that's sort of further back uh, out of view than what uh, web security would be, say, in the browser. Right. So, I mean, even at this point, after all these years of the webs, even casual users are aware uh, when you're, you know, looking, you're browsing the web and whatever web browser you're using, yeah, you're on. You're you're submitting your credit card number. Or you're on logging into your bank or something. That you look over in the address bar and look for the little HTTPS lock, which you know, admittedly, isn't a perfect gauge, but it's something to look for. But when it comes to apps, there's really no indication at all of what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is probably the most prominent example uh, when we talk about SSL. So, you know, clearly we have sort of been ingraining in people that if you go somewhere where uh, sensitive data is going to be handled, credentials, bank information, that sort of thing, uh, you see the padlock before you enter your credentials. And if you're really paranoid, you click on the padlock and you see the certificate and you establish some sort of assurance that at least maybe the connection uh, is good and at least the site that you think you are on is the one that, that has actually loaded. But of course, uh, move that over to mobile and now suddenly you are entirely at the mercy of the app that is connecting to this this service, right? Does that mean you don't get... Uh, an implicit assurance in terms of padlocks or address bars or things like that in the app. Uh, you get some people who put uh, images of padlocks <laughs> in the app, but <laughs> hey, guys, that really doesn't actually work the same way as the you know the, like the real padlock in the browser bar. Oh, you mean that's not how SSL works? Yeah, apparently, that's not. <laughs> and uh, and then the other thing is, all those little Entrust or VeriSign logos people put on websites, guys, they're bitmaps. <laughs> they don't work. It doesn't actually do anything. It looks nice, and you can sort of go, "Hey, we got a logo," but you know, you, you don't even have to load the the logo over SSL. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm I'm getting off on a tangent, but that's a pet hate of mine. So, I mean, do you see that? In your opinion, then, uh, who's resp- is it the responsibility? Do you think of the you know, say Apple or Google or, or these different OS providers to to start exposing that kind of thing more, or is it um, should app developers? Uh, just just kind of do this by default or kind of um, be a little more open about what they're doing? 
It's a good question, and, and often people will say, well, how is it possible that my credentials are posted over HTTP? Didn't it go through Apple review process before it hit the App Store? Addy, I guess you've got to sort of be clear about what it is that, that Apple and Google and Microsoft and you know anyone who owns an App Store that has this sort of purview process uh, are looking for. And, and they're looking for the integrity of the application, something that's not going to uh, obviously do nasty things within the ecosystem of other apps uh, on the device. And, and their priorities are, are sort of trying to make a pretty smooth uh, end user experience. It would be very difficult for them to start making judgment calls on what should be protected on the transport layer and what shouldn't. So I, I fully appreciate the fact that uh, we, we can't sort of expect them to do it. But the, the second part of your question was, should developers do it? And, and yeah, you know, that's where the responsibility is. At the end of the day, these are the guys that are somewhere hard coding the, the scheme that this resource is going to be requested over. And, and they're also somewhere building the service which has been enabled to be requested over an insecure scheme. So really the buck stops with them. So then that kind of begs the question of, uh, I mean, is, is just putting HTTPS up enough or are, are there more things to do? I know that, um, you know, personally from doing, uh, being PCI compliant in, in my day job, I know all about the, the OWASP top 10 and things like that that are um, largely targeted at web applications, but I would think that a lot of that would tie over to APIs as well, since you know they really are web applications. Yeah, exactly. And I was just going to make that point. I think we like to try and 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 maybe we just do it as, as a sort of course of habit, uh, refer to websites as being different beasts to, to APIs. But at the end of the day, they they all talk over HTTP. Uh, increasingly, websites are communicating in in JSON as well as as, as HTML. Uh, and at the you know they're sitting there on IIS or Apache or Nginx or whatever it's going to be. You know, they're really the, the same sort of beasts. Uh, they're just sort of slightly different variants. So to the point about is just requesting something over HTTPS enough? Well, it's no, it's not. And you mentioned OWASP, and OWASP talks about uh, insufficient transport layer security. And that's a really key point there, insufficient. So it's not so much a question of do you have it or don't you have it. It is uh, have you done it right? Now I can go and build an API and do everything right in terms of the SSL implementation and then someone can go and consume that from somewhere else and then disable certificate validation and it's just thrown my SSL totally out the window because a man in the middle can get in the, in, in the communication, can proxy the data and re-sign it with their own certificate and this app is going, oh, it's HTTPS, it's all good. But yeah, the certificate's not right <laughs> and that's kind of the point of SSL. <laughs> And the number of times this is disabled would stun most people. Right. I mean, I've, I've seen study after study of audits done on even, you know, big banking apps and, you know, apps that you, you just take a lot for granted when you're signing into them that, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so bank really must know what they're doing. They're a bank. Um, but, you know, they're not doing something as simple as validating SSL certificates, which renders it useless, as you said, which it, it really is mind boggling. Yeah, you'd think that they know what they're doing, but I've got a perfect example of this. So about a year ago now, I was preparing for Microsoft TechEd here in Australia, and I wanted to show a good example of how an app handles an invalid certificate. And I had checked my bank, one of the big Aussie banks down here, you know, multi-billion dollar bank. And I checked mm. it before, and it, and it actually dealt, dealt with things very gracefully. And I thought, okay, well, look, I'll just go and screen cap some of this. And then I can say, hey, everybody, this particular bank is, you know, this is what you should be seeing. So I've gone in and just proxied the traffic from my iPhone through Fiddler. 
and without having a certificate or anything on my device, it's just a, a very normal device, uh, loaded up this uh, particular app and, and I can see all the traffic in Fiddler. And I'm going, you know, surely this can't be what I think has happened. It used to be good. Uh, <laughs> I must have something wrong here. But uh, as it turned out, they had actually disabled their certificate validation and I, I got in touch with them privately because it would have been a very uh, very embarrassing situation for them and said, you know, you might want to have a look at this, guys. Uh, and they did actually find that they had somewhere along the line disabled certificate and validation uh, in one of their recent releases, pushed it out, and the first they heard of it was was me just by accident browsing around going, oh, I wonder if this works. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, they had a, a, an update shortly after that um, that had, uh, quote-unquote, uh, enhanced features. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I missed the bit in the Apple App Store update that said, yeah, we screwed up and disabled our SS validation. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. It's well, that's why, I mean, as a developer, you know, you know, from my side, if you, if you don't know what to put, you just put bug fixes and enhancements <laughs> exactly. and, you know, everything can kind of be swept under that rug. Yeah, you, you never see it say, we really, really screwed up and this fixes it. <laughs> no, it's an enhancement. It wasn't yeah, a bug, yeah. it was a feature. Well, I, I can't um, argue that it was an enhancement. <laughs> <laughs> so then I'm kind of putting on the developer hat there for a second. Like, how is it difficult then for on most platforms to do certificate validation? And, and kind of as a second point to that, I, is there a reason why that wouldn't be the, the default behavior on, you know, any particular framework <laughs> that you might be using? <laughs> So, so this is the interesting thing about it, and I, I guess part of the reason we're talking about API security is I, I pushed out a Pluralsight course on uh, Hack Your API First recently, and, and these are all the sorts of things I walk through in terms of how to identify these risks, uh, and I tackle that question of, you know, why do developers disable it? And, and one of the points I make in the course is that uh, it, it is not so much that uh, they haven't enabled it, it is usually that they have disabled it. Because certainly for all the platforms that, that I'm aware of, certainly the mainstream stuff, any request to an HTTPS resource will involve implicit certificate validation via the framework that they're using on that operating system. It, it will just happen. So, you know, for example, in, in the ASP.NET stack that I'm most familiar with, if I go out and make a web request to an HTTPS resource, it will validate the certificate. And I actually have to jump through quite a few hoops in order to disable it. So I think it's almost sort of the converse to what you ask, which is, you know, people are investing effort to deliberately break the mechanism. See, that that I find very, very interesting. I Just trying to understand the, the mindset of why you might want to go do that um, and then being surprised, I guess, when it it does that. It, that seems, <laughs> you know, counterintuitive. <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. Um, and I'll tell you why it normally happens. At least this is what I observe. So someone is building a service on their device and they go through and they stand it up over HTTPS and then this service is running on their development environment and they fire up the app and guess what? The certificate is invalid because it's on their development environment. It's self-signed and now I can't consume it because SSL is doing exactly what it's meant to do and the consumer is actually not validating it. So they say, well, you know, this is kind of really getting in my way. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to turn it off. Uh, and they turn it off and they just leave it off. Now, of course, what we really want to do, and this is something I go into in a little bit more detail in the course, uh, is look at mechanisms like, well, first of all, if it is actually an externally facing resource, you can get free SSL certificates. Go to start.com or startssl.com and get yourself a free cert. Beauty. There's nothing wrong with that. Go and do that. 
Alternatively, if you really want to use your own self-signed cert, you can always just install it on your device. So, you know, have your device trust the cert and then all the other mechanisms that go into consuming the service will just implicitly work and effectively it will validate the certificate. It's almost like you've just trusted your own CA. So if I was a developer and I wanted to, to test whether my app was checking for, for cert validity, I mean, what is, what's the, the quickest way that I could kind of go about doing that without, say, you know, pulling the cert off of my public API? So there's a really, really easy way to do this, um, and, and it, it, not to sort of overly plug the course, but the steps are, are in there mm -hmm. that people can go and find on, uh, on Pluralsight.com. But it, it basically involves, uh, let's fire up Fiddler on my device. So Fiddler is a very uh, popular debugging tool, uh, particularly for Windows users. Uh, I believe you can do the same thing with Charles Proxy for the Mac users out there. Uh, so we're going to fire up this proxy tool on the device, uh, sorry, on my, on my PC slash Mac. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to uh, my mobile device and I'm going to set my proxy settings to that of the PC. So for me, I'm an iPhone user, I'm a Windows user, so I'd fire up Fiddler, I'd get the IP address of my machine, I'd go to my mobile device, I'd set my HTTP proxy to be the IP of my machine, uh, and there's a port in there that defaults to 8888. But basically then, a couple of minutes, uh, every time I make a request for a resource via my iPhone, I'm going to see those requests appear on my PC. Now this alone, I find fascinating, and I don't think I'm, I'm too much of a train spotter <laughs> that way. I think other people find it interesting <laughs> just to see the amount of stuff that goes from apps uh, out via your uh, connection. And I'll give you an example of that in a moment too. But <laughs> to finish the point, now when we do this, if we request an HTTPS resource, there's a couple of things that can happen. So what you can do is you can configure Fiddler to decrypt HTTPS. And what that means is when it sees that request go to an HTTPS resource, it will effectively become like a man in the middle. It will proxy the communication backwards and forwards with the target server, and then it will re-sign things with its own certificate. Now Fiddler re-signs with its own certificate and returns the response to the user their device should reject the connection. So their device should go through the certificate validation and say, hey, we just requested this resource and the certificate that we got back was uh, Fiddler self-signed and it doesn't actually validate for this domain. So your device should do exactly what it's designed to do and throw up its hands and go nuts and, and reject the connection. So the most simple test you can do is set decryption, uh, HTTPS decryption on Fiddler, not muck around with your device other than to proxy the traffic and then just see how much stuff still works. Because if it still works, it means that your traffic has been man in the middle and suddenly Fiddler or Mr. Nasty Person at the coffee shop um, is getting all your data. So that's a really, really basic test. So then, I mean, kind of the corollary to that would be, um, well, like what if I want to use these tools to debug my API as part of, you know, I'm working on my app, I want to debug the, the conversation that's happening between uh, my device and my API. Um, so I could do that by, I guess, installing the certificate on my, my device or, or something like that. Or, I mean, how else, how else could you go about doing that without, um, you know, manually turning off SSL val or certificate validation rather in your code? Yeah, so th this is where we sort of level up <laughs> a little bit, and <laughs> and you're quite right. We're, we're going to install the certificate on the device. Uh, so again, in in the the Fiddler Windows iOS uh, sort of world, and there there are um, equivalents for other platforms, you can install Fiddler's root certificate 
on your iOS device. You just open up Safari and you go to a, a particular URL and it says, do you want to install the certificate? And you say yes. And then effectively, all the certificate validation that happens natively in iOS uh, will actually recognize the, the CA that, that is Fiddler. So what you can do then is you can make a legitimate request which your device will validate and you can still see all the traffic in Fiddler. So this is a great way to actually go and start looking at HTTPS requests and, and sort of inspecting what's happening inside them, manipulating them and so on in Fiddler without actually compromising the app itself. So I, I, I do want to jump back a little bit. So I mean, earlier we, we were talking about uh, things like the OWASP top 10 and how they apply to, you know, some of some things apply to APIs and, um, you know, others are, are more, you know, standard classic web app, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, but, I, but I would definitely like to, to dig into some of the things in there that developers should be aware of. And I know we had a couple terms that um, kind of got uh, tossed around there that uh, any you know, developers that might not be as security experienced might not necessarily know. Um, so could you kind of dig into some of the kind of, let's say, the high points of things that are in that, that top 10 to be, uh, to be aware of for APIs? Yeah, so uh, and uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, uh, OWASP is the Open Web Application Security Project, and they create a resource called the Top 10 Web Application Security Risks, and they, they pump one out every few years. 2013 is the current edition. And they go through and they rank these top risks uh, in terms of, uh, there's a few different criteria, but they're things like prevalence and impact and ease of exploitability. Uh, so number one, for example, is SQL injection. Uh, the number one risk that they recognize on the web today is SQL injection. And that's in part because it's very prevalent and in part because it's easy to exploit and also in part because when you do exploit it, you can do some pretty serious damage. So bringing that into an API world, uh, how would you actually exploit a SQL injection risk uh, in an API? And, and really, it's, it's not that much different to the way you would in a normal website. So you think about uh, what are the parameters that the API uh, might take. So, you know, are we posting data to an API? Can we manipulate some of those uh, form parameters in the post body such that uh, rather than just passing uh, an integer for an ID, we actually pass a string that might execute an arbitrary command uh, in the SQL server? Uh, and I've got other courses on Pluralsight that go into more detail on that. But it can be extremely simple. And the other scary thing about it is it can be easily automated as well. There are free tools out there where you just plug in a URL and it goes away and, and pulls all your data out of your database <laughs> if you've done things wrong. Uh, great demo material too. Copy, paste, go, and here's all your passwords. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so that risk is really no different. And it, it sort of goes back to the earlier point where we said APIs are really not that different to websites. I mean, they... They still have these HTTP paradigms of, of, a, of, an H, of a get request or a post request that may pass parameters via query string or form body or request header, uh, and those could have malicious payloads. So it's, it, it's not that different at all in that regard. So what are the... Um, what are the what would you say the most common mistakes are that, that people make um, in a lot of the APIs that you're observing? Look, there's a few really common things, and I think we probably touched on on the ones around SSL. So, not having SSL or not validating the certificate, or even in some cases, and this is also not validating, 
There's an example in my course where one of our prominent taxi apps is actually serving up a self-signed certificate. This is in production and it's got the guy's name as the <laughs> CA. And anyway, and it had expired a year ago too. <laughs> so, so we see that sort of thing happen a lot. Another one that comes up quite a bit is uh, insufficient authorization or, or basically trusting the client to do the authorization. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, British Airways, and this is a great example because nobody gets into too much trouble for it. <laughs> but British Airways, <laughs> when you um, when you first, you can edit this out if it doesn't work. But when you first open the British Airways app, there's a there's a segment here where you can authenticate. And if you authenticate and you're a member of their executive club, and I think you've got to be like a silver or gold level, you can get the Wi-Fi credentials for their lounge. Uh, so clearly there is an expectation that these Wi-Fi credentials get protected and they're only given to authorised users. Now, what they seem to have neglected is that as soon as you open that app, it pulls all of them back from an API anyway. So if you're sitting there looking at the data that your app is getting over the web, all of the lounge Wi-Fi passwords are already there. All you've got to do is open the app. You don't have to authenticate. So that's a really good example of where they're sort of assuming this trust relationship between the app and the API and it's only ever going to be used the way we design and nobody's going to look at the traffic, which means that they have to actually put credentials in before they get anything, but their authorization is actually happening after the data is already on the device. <laughs> That's definitely a, a, an interesting one. I've, I've, I've heard that around before, uh, probably from you in one of your talks <laughs> at some point. I've gotten um, a bit of mileage I mean, it. it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, it's it's definitely a funny one. Um, I mean, but the to play devil's advocate too. I mean, it could also be in theory, um, probably not in practice in this case, but it could be a, a conscious decision on the the part of the developer to say, well, this isn't something that you know we really need to secure. It's kind of just a you know smoke and mirrors type security. So, I mean, to to kind of that point, like you know, it really matters what type of thing you're you're securing, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think the, the key differentiator here is was that a conscious risk assessment where they then made a right. call on it and <laughs> said, and, and there could be valid reasons, right? So they could say, look, if we can just get all these HTTP requests out of the way when the thing first loads and then if your connection drops or anything like that, you've got all the data. Um, and at the end of the day, and, and this is why it's good for presentations and, and talking about it because BA won't come and sue me. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's Wi-Fi credentials, right? It's, it's not exactly anything serious. Now, that the problem, of course, comes when that risk assessment isn't done, but the data is returned and it's of a class that you actually wouldn't want there. So I wrote about a, a case that was very similar to this a few years ago, and it was to do with our, our Westfield shopping centers uh, here in Australia. And one of them had uh, an iPhone app that helped you find your car if you lost it in the shopping center. So I always think of that Seinfeld episode where they spend the whole day walking around the car park trying to find it. <laughs> you know, that's what this app is designed <laughs> to do. And the way it works is when you drive up to the car park, and these days there's a, there's a big neon sign out the front or LED sign, and it sort of says, you know, there's five parks this way and ten parks that way. And they've got all the little sensors on the roof that detect whether there's a car in the park or not. And this particular shopping center had sensors with cameras as well. And the cameras would face one way for the number plate on one side of the of the lane and the other way for the other ones. And it was taking photos of all of these cars and obviously going back to a central system somewhere, OCRing all the number plates and then acting as a back end of the app 
So when you come out from a day's worth of shopping and you forget where you lost the car, you plug in your number plate and it brings back four sort of grainy photos of cars so that you can't quite make out the number plate, but you can see if it was a red Ferrari or a you know, black SUV or something. And you would then get directions to the parking bay that it was in. Now, all of this is awesome. But what they were doing is they were returning in the API, not just the path of the photos, which you need, but they were returning the number plates in clear text. So what they were actually doing was leaking some data, which really at the end of the day has a privacy impact. And to make it worse, even though they were returning four results, that four was a query string parameter on the API. So you could make it 40, 400, 4,000, and you could get every one of the 2,500 number plates that were there in the shopping center. And because they never expected it to be, to be used in a way other than what they designed, you could request it every 30 seconds and get all of the comings and goings of every single vehicle in the shopping center. So that is an example that sort of takes it a step further in terms of, well, here is a class of data, which is personally identifiable data by many measures, that people don't actually want leaked, and it's just sitting there in the API. Well, who needs uh, someone like the NSA when you have parking lots, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. How, how easy it is it? You don't need NSA skills. You need uh, Fiddler. <laughs> that's it, and you can find exactly, this. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> So I, we've talked a, a lot about HTTP APIs and HTTPS and things like that at this point, but I'd also be curious to know, uh, as you've observed a lot of apps and started cracking open tools like Fiddler to really see what's going on, um, have you observed many apps doing, um, you know, say, direct access to a database instead of going through some sort of API layer? Not usually, only in so far as, as HTTP tends to be the, the ubiquitous protocol that all devices can talk over. Uh, I, I imagine, and I, I haven't even tried this, I haven't seen anyone try to do it, but I imagine that if I tried to create, say, an, an, an ADO connection from my iPhone directly to a, a SQL database somewhere, uh, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> so, you know, inevitably we do have HTTP as, as the transport layer of choice uh, for almost all communications from devices. Right. And I mean, through, well, you bring up ADO, I mean, through tools like Xamarin, you actually can if you really want to do that stuff. And I know it always, like I've been, I've been in the Xamarin community for a while and I've, I've helped a lot of people kind of get started. And I've always been surprised at the amount of times I hear that question of, well, can I, can I connect directly through ADO or Entity Framework or something right to my database? And I always have to, you know, take a step back and encourage some sort of API separation there. Yeah, so, but it's encouraging to hear you haven't observed that much in the wild. Well, that that that's interesting, and I guess Xamarin, ultimately being .NET based, that they've maybe got the luxury of being able to do that. I, I don't know how you'd do that in Objective C or Swift or something like that. Um, but it it is a really good case of where you do want that that abstraction, uh, and particularly when you start putting these apps on multiple different platforms. You want to think about that. And also, when you're talking about, and let's say it is an ADO.NET connection over uh, port 1433, are you going to possibly put yourself on a network somewhere that blocks that port? You know, the nice thing about HTTP is it is ubiquitous, and 80 and 443 for HTTPS are open everywhere. So you've got no problems with that being uh, blocked or, or made difficult anywhere. That's definitely a good point, too. Um, and I'd also, I'd, I'd love to dig in a little bit, I mean, even outside of, say, network sensitivity or ne network security there, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you, know, you know, for developers that are used to running web applications or 
um, you know, APIs and that sort of thing, you're, you have the luxury of being the host or controlling the hosting environment of those applications. But in the case of mobile apps, your, your app is out and in the wild and on devices that could be compromised themselves. So and can you speak a little bit to say, you know, uh, data security around local databases or file systems? Like what kind of things do you have to look out for there as a developer? Yeah, this is a really good point, and this is where I think particularly people moving from a more uh, web-centric context, which which I suspect many do into mobile, uh, it's an area that they often don't think about. So I've got a, a picture I often show uh, that, that sort of has the device on one side and it has the API server on the other side and a line between them, which is our transport layer. And we, we say, well, look, where do we expect attackers to come from? Well, you know, the transport layer is one. So we use HTTPS and we put a little attacker there. And if we do our HTTPS correctly, then that's fine. They can't see it or manipulate it or anything like that. Where people often neglect to pay much attention to is that what happens when the attacker actually owns the device as well. So the attacker, and I mean, I don't mean own it in a in a sort of leet speak kind of fashion, but they, they have the physical <laughs> device and they install the app on there and they proxy it through Fiddler and they own the connection. So not only do they actually uh, have access to the app on the device, and of course they've got access to the downloaded assemblies as well, so don't forget that, but they have access to the way the device communicates with the API. Now when they have access to that, now they can start doing things like actually changing the requests that are sent from the device and they can change the responses that can come back to the device. And they can do all of that on the transport layer. So I give examples of things like using Fiddler script to change uh, on before request to manipulate the request that the app is making or manipulate something like on before response so that when the response comes back from the API, and it's got that little flag in there which says whether the person is an admin or not when they authenticated. We just turn that on. <laughs> we just change it to yes. <laughs> and very often apps will go, oh, well, this person must be an admin because the API told me so. Yeah, but they own the device and they're able to change the way the communication comes back to the device. And then that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, uh, you know, again, around the, the OWASP type points where, you know, it's up to your API layer to also enforce that uh, the, the calling API user has access to what they're claiming to have access to. Yeah, and this is where it all sort of starts to get a little bit gray because, and to your, your question earlier about the way data might be stored on the device, you have to start working on the assumption that everything you send to the device, everything you save on the device, and everything you send from the device is accessible uh, via an attacker. And then you start to say, okay, well, if that's the case, uh, you know, what am I actually going to put in these payloads, you know, in, in these HTTP requests? Uh, so, well, I can put anything in there that I'm happy for this person to see. Now, it may not be things that I'm happy for everyone to see. I still want to have SSL and so on. But if you've successfully authenticated, then I might be quite happy for you to see the token that you get back. It's, it's yours. You, you can only sort of hurt yourself by misusing it. But where you want to start being a little bit careful is what happens if I send data back to the device, which I actually don't want you to see. So what happens if I have uh, API keys there that everyone uses and could be abused? That's when it all starts to get a lot trickier. And there are usually not sort of simple one way of, of doing everything. You know, then you might start saying, well, 
do I need to use things like a message authentication code so that I know that when the data comes back, it hasn't been tampered with? Uh, do I actually need to encrypt it on the server before I send it back to the client? That starts to get very, very hazy then. Right. And the, the analogy that I, I often try and make when, when talking about this sort of thing to someone who's primarily a web developer is, and at this point, most web developers know that you shouldn't trust uh, anything that's coming back from the client side, or you shouldn't trust JavaScript, say, for things like that form validation and such. And even if you have it on have it on the client side, some sort of form validation, it's really for visuals and user experience, but you still need to revalidate revalidate that on the client side. And the same really applies to, to apps talking to an API as well. Yeah, and, and this is the old message rejigged because we've always said this in a web app. You know, we've said, look, JavaScript on the client is awesome because you can get this sort of instantaneous feedback and you can save requests to the server and everything's nice and sort of responsive for the user, um, but it can be turned off. It can be circumvented. So in the course, I go through examples where, look, we're validating certain things on the client side. So, you know, for example, we're validating whether this user has access to, to perform a certain task. But whether that is replicated on the server or not is another question. And if it's not there on the server, then you can just sidestep the client and go straight to the server. Exactly. And you mentioned before um, a good point about, you know, once your app is out on the well, let's call them the attacker's device or whoever it may be. Uh, it's basically theirs for the taking, and you can usually decompile apps, especially. And a lot of our listener base are, are Xamarin developers, so your your code that you know you can obfuscate it if you want, but it can still be completely decompiled from IL back to C sharp or whatever you might have written it in. Um, so there's no there's no real like secrets there. Everything is kind of like up for the grabs if you can get to the the app file on the, the file system of your device. Yeah, that, that's the only real safe assumption to work with. And, and, and even if you do go down the obfuscation path at the app layer, that in no way helps you with the transport layer. And, and okay, right. you, you, you can try and obfuscate there as well, but you're probably then at the point where you need to start asking yourself, what am I trying to protect and from whom? And is this really the right way to do it? And a, a really simple answer there is that if, if you're not sending things to the client that you don't want them seeing, then you, you don't really have a problem, at, at least not in terms of people being able to access the, uh, you know, decompile the device or access the transport layer. Right. So if you're storing, if I'm a developer and I wanted to store uh, some sort of sensitive information, be it a, a password or um, maybe even a, a token to to my app or to some other app. I mean, what, what are some of the best ways you can approach doing that on mobile platforms? Well, I think the main thing is, is to try and make it user specific. So if I need to store something on the device which may allow an authenticated user to perform a certain task, let's try and give them their own. So let's try and avoid having tokens sent down to a device that, that could be used by any authenticated user to perform tasks. Because once you do that, if somebody does leak that and abuse that, first of all, you've got no idea uh, who it is, which is number one. Uh, and second of all, it, it, it's clearly an exploit that could then be applied to anyone. So, you know, does this token allow me to impersonate someone else? Uh, you know, is it able to be reused in ways that I didn't design it to be? And I, I think in, in most of the cases I see where there is something of a sensitive nature, which people don't want other 
uh, let's say, malicious actors to get access to, it, they're usually answering the wrong question. They're usually trying to do something that we really shouldn't be doing in that way. And then I'm kind of, again, to the point of storing things like API keys or, or tokens, um, one, of the, one of the most common things you'll see in apps these days are, say, uh, login with Facebook or login with Google, where the, the default SDKs from Facebook or Google or Twitter or what have you, uh, you basically need to provide your, your application ID with them and also your app secret and things like that that um, on, on the surface seem like they really shouldn't be stored in plain text on something like a device that can easily be decompiled. I mean, have you seen any good approaches to, um, to doing that in mobile apps where you're not, you don't need to, say, expose something that, that should be kept secret? Or have you found that that's not really a problem with those particular types of tokens? Yeah, look, that, that starts to get a little bit trickier. And I, I guess one of the things about that is it's very device specific. So uh, the question then is, is how can we uh, store something which may be of a sensitive nature, such as the API secret for, for an OAuth provider, um, how can we best store that in the device? And that's something I'd, I'd probably say, look, go back to uh, your manufacturer of choice and see what their recommendation is. Um, inevitably, they will provide a means of secure storage uh, in such a way that if the owner of the device or the owner of the connection gets hold of it, they can't use that to exploit other people. Uh, but it's, it, it, it does make it tricky. Yeah, and, and I know in our case... I. When we were we were solving that uh, the company I work for now, and we, I basically saw a lot of different advice, and uh, it's it did seem like there wasn't any you know one true path to follow there for for solving it. And what we ended up doing was hosting the the SSO redirects and and um, and client secrets and all of that stuff like on our platform, and just kind of um, used our API as a, a redirect mechanism to to mask all that from uh, from the the app entirely. Yeah, and I guess that sort of goes to the earlier point of, of trying to keep the secrets on the server, even if it's your server and you have to be the proxy for it. But it, uh, to be honest, each time I get into this discussion or, or get into sort of general OAuth implementation discussions, uh, or, or to be honest, even general identity discussions and things like the ASP.NET platform, there's just no really good, clear one way of doing things is there is always so much speculation about different approaches and things change so quickly and, and people have very strong vehement um, objections <laughs> to many of the recommendations <laughs> so I have actually avoided uh, writing material on it or, or trying to put a stake in the ground because inevitably someone will come along and tell you you're wrong and they'll probably be right too. <laughs> hey everyone this episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun is an essential tool for every developer, helping you detect and diagnose your errors in real time so your team can fix bugs faster. Just a few lines of code is all it takes to get started, and you'll be amazed how quickly you start receiving reports from all of your apps. Why wait for frustrated users to notify you when they hit a bug, and then spend your time digging through log files? Raygun notifies you immediately and with all the information you need. Raygun keeps everyone informed, so whether you have one or 100 developers, you'll get everything you need to become an awesome development team. Start your free trial today at raygun.io and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. So, I mean, to that point, like, what are some of the different ways, um, I guess, jumping back to, to HTTP since, uh, as we've established, that's kind of the de facto way to do app-to-server communications. Um, you know, what are some of the different approaches you can take to securing uh, your API um, and allowing access to your apps? 
Well, I guess it depends on what risk it is that you're trying to protect. So, you know, we, we've covered things like um, like SSL. Uh, we touched on things like SQL injection, and really that's the same sort of approach as what you'd have in the web app. I, I guess the other sort of risks that we'd commonly see are things like direct object reference risks, where you can request an API and that API takes a parameter, which is a resource in the database, and if you change that parameter to something else, you get another resource. So we often see this exploited in web apps where uh, you load say a bank account and then the bank uh, account number is in the query string and you change the query string to something else and you get someone else's bank account uh, which is rather nasty um, that same <laughs> sort of thing often appears in apis and the, the unfortunate nature of apis is in many ways it actually makes it easier to exploit because they're so sort of nice and lightweight uh, and fast to enumerate through so again, it's, it's sort of the same answer to the web in that we have uh, predefined patterns for these. And, and the answer to something like insecure direct object references is really you have a lack of access control. Um, so think about that. Uh, another one that I, I see quite a bit in APIs, and, and what's interesting is that you'll go to a website and the website will, will do this properly and then the API will fail. And that's things like uh, brute force protection. So for authentication APIs, can you just keep going over and over and over and over again? Um, I did a presentation a few months ago in Norway where I looked at uh, a Qantas reset process. And because of the way they'd implemented the API and they hadn't actually applied the same brute force protection, you could keep going through the attempt to reset uh, someone's uh, PIN and, until you, you basically guessed the, the right credentials, which is you know just nuts. But... That's just another example of, you know, someone stood up an API and it's light and easy and makes it easy to enumerate and there's no brute force protection. And that's to that point too, that's exactly this kind of attack that got exposed recently from uh, Apple's iCloud as well where, mm. you know, uh, I don't know that it was anything came out definitively, at least that I saw that said that that's how they got into celebrity accounts. But at the very least, at, at that same time, this this exploit came out where the, the password uh, the login or password reset or one of those forms on the, the iCloud login wasn't um, doing any sort of brute force protection. So it was pretty easy to just brute force a whole bunch of passwords. Yeah, so that was the the iBrute uh, proof of concept against the <laughs> yeah. Find My my Phone implementation. Um, I, I, That's right. I, I think what ultimately came out of the wash with celebrities is that um, it just so happens that they're like the rest of us and they choose crap passwords. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there's, there's that combined with the fact that, you know, once you're a publicly facing identity, then other information about you, such as what would be asked in, the, in a typical secret question and answer solution or, or situation is, is probably pretty easy to discover. That's probably true, yeah. So we've talked a lot uh, or rather uh, a little bit so far about um, how man in the middle attacks can work and how you can kind of inject an attacker can inject themselves into the, the transport mechanism there. And is that something that's only really possible if you're on a Wi-Fi connection or is that something that an attacker would also be able to pull off on if you're, say, on 3G or any kind of cellular connection? It's a good question, and really when we talk about a man in the middle, it's a question of what they're in the middle of, and they're in the middle of the conversation between uh, the app and the, and, and let's actually clarify that a little bit, the, the app running on the mobile device and the API running on the server. So that then begs the question, well, what are all the different points along that connection where there could be a man in the middle? 
And the, the sort of ubiquitous one is, well, you're on a dodgy Wi-Fi. You know, you've gone to the cafe and the guy owning the cafe is actually proxying all your traffic and, and PCAPing all your, um, all your bytes. So that would be a really obvious example. Uh, but other examples, and we've got some really interesting precedents of these, include things like at the ISP level. Uh, so there's a, a good precedent here of uh, Tunisia a few years ago when they had a lot of uh, sort of political uh, uprisings. Uh, the government there decided that maybe what they should do is at the ISP level, and the government controlled the ISPs, when someone loads the Facebook login page, which was over HTTP at the time, let's uh, whack a keylogger on that. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that, that is happening so far upstream of where you're actually connected. Uh, you know, you really can't get away from that. And, of course, we now know that the NSA has probably been doing things that are much worse than that for much longer as well. <laughs> and uh, when you own the entire national infrastructure of, of uh, network cables, you can sort of um, get yourself into those positions. But another really good example that I use a lot in, in my demos is I've got a little device called a Wi-Fi Pineapple. And this guy is its a little device you can get off the net for about 100 bucks. It's made by a company called Hack5. And they make these uh, for penetration testing purposes. Uh, and I'm doing air quotes when I say that because not everybody uses it for those purposes. <laughs> and what, what the Wi-Fi Pineapple does is it can actually trick devices into connecting to it. Uh, so what a lot of people don't realize is that their mobile devices that normally connect to Wi-Fi networks, they keep broadcasting the names of the networks they've previously connected to. Uh, so you go out and you walk around and your mobile is broadcasting the name of your home network and your work network and all the other places that you've connected to. And this pineapple actually looks for these probe requests, they call them, and it identifies it and then it changes its SSID to be the name of the network which your device is looking for. And then if there was no encryption on that network, they can actually make a connection and without even taking your phone out of your pocket, you're now connected to this rogue hotspot and all of your traffic is going through there and potentially being proxied back out to the web. And of course, all right. of this and comes... And every app on your phone probably just noticed that there's now a Wi-Fi connection and starts connecting to yeah, everything it can. exactly. How good <laughs> is this? We've got a connection. Let's update. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> all of this is really to make the point that uh, having your connection compromised can be fundamentally simple. And when I run this at, at conferences, and you've got to be careful where you run this thing, apparently in Germany they'll send you to jail if you do that, so I'm not going to take it to Germany. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when I do use this for demos... It is just amazing how many devices jump onto this. And I set it up to, to use DNS spoof so that no matter what you request, you get this one page which says, hey, you probably shouldn't be there. And I'll fire it up. <laughs> uh, I fired it up in a workshop I was holding the other day and, and the guy's saying to me, you know, hey, look, your, your demo site's broken. I'm getting this. So yeah, it's because your MacBook just connected to my pineapple, mate. <laughs> you, you have, uh, your, your device has a very liberal approach to who it will create a relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely kind of problematic there. Yep. Um, so we've talked a lot about you know network access and API security and things like that. Um, but one other thing I, I wanted to bring up was, um, so I mean, hybrid apps are something that are kind of more and more common these days where a, a large part of an application can be essentially just a web page running in, uh, in a web view shell, you know, on any particular platform. Mm. Um, does this pose any any security vulnerabilities that might not have been there if it was a fully native app? 
Yeah, look, that is a good question. So I, I haven't tried this with something like a PhoneGap app, but I imagine that you would still have a risk of something like uh, cross-site scripting. So if you were going to ultimately render HTML in the app, and, and as you say, it's really just an HTML web app in, in a shell, but if you're going to render HTML and you're not properly outputting coding uh, untrusted data, then then you could actually have an XSS risk. Uh, it'd be a good question. I haven't actually tried that. I, I should give that a go. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there was that bug that um, got publicized pretty recently about uh, not the latest version of the Android browser, but the version of the Android, all versions of the Android browser that you know fifty to sixty percent of the market are are using that aren't really doing um, you know proper cross-domain checks. So there was a pretty bad bug that that came out recently where, you know, a lot of these hybrid apps running on, you know, not the latest version of Android, which is most users out there, um, would be, probably be susceptible to the exact same thing. So, so hang on, there was a bug in Android. <laughs> yes. I know, it's weird, right? Yeah, is, is this a day ending in Y? Um, yeah. it's, <laughs> it might be. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, and, and certainly within security circles, there is much uh, fun poked at the security profile of Android. Um, because of, I think, largely because of the, the very liberal nature of it, and as you just alluded to as well, the, you know how old um, many of the operating systems out there still are. So it's it's unfortunate, but Android does uh, feature way more than what it probably should in security risks. <laughs> so I mean, that brings up another point that I'd, I'd be curious to get your take on. Then um, you know you're obviously a lot more involved in security communities than I am, so I'd be interested to hear what the general um, not consensus, but general opinion is of, you know, iOS versus Android versus Windows Phone of, um, you know, security approaches and malware and things like that. Look, the, the general opinion, and I guess it depends on whether you're talking about uh, an audience that's a very consumer-facing audience in, in terms of what, you know, what their risk is, or whether you're talking about security professionals who probably expected a different level of, of protection. But if, if we talk in a consumer sense, obviously the, the risk with Android is, is when you have the ability to take uh, applications from outside the default app stores, that's when we seem to have most of the problems. And, and obviously that's, that's something which is a whole lot more difficult with iOS. Uh, and inevitably, iOS has actually had a fantastic track record when it comes to security. And in fact, when people say to me, you know, should we do our, our banking on, a, on an iPhone? Um, yeah, absolutely, because you're far less likely to have malware on there or, or keyloggers or other nasties. And I mean, mind you, I've just said how our, the bank I tested wasn't doing their SSL properly. But, um, <laughs> you know, for, for the most part, it is a more secure position to be when you're on an app or rather when you're on a device where these apps are so well sandboxed, you're only taking stuff from an app store where they have actually been tested and verified uh, and there's a really good update mechanism as well. And I'm sure it's the same on other platforms. Uh, and, and certainly Windows uh, Phone seems to get a very good rap in that regard as well. So Android, for, for all its um, freedom and, and appeal to, to people who want to be able to do things uh, in a more liberal fashion than what you can on iOS, you know, that's great. But it also brings some inherent risks as well. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Apple makes it difficult to sideload even your own apps, much less someone else's apps. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> circumvents that problem a little bit. And, and, you know, we all jump up and down and complain about it when we want to do it. But I, I tell you what, it's hard to argue with from a security perspective. Absolutely. So I, one, more, one more question I wanted to bring up on the, the website of things. And 
I mean, hybrid apps bring this up a little bit more, but technologies like WebSockets are starting to make their way, you know, out of just the standard web and more into apps, even on fully native apps, but especially in the case of, of hybrid apps where you have the web view and things like WebSockets built in. Um, like, what are the security implications of using WebSockets over standard HTTP? And is there anything that you need to worry about there? Yeah, look, it's it's a good question, and like you say, that's something that's beginning to be popularised. Um, I'm in a very .NET centric space, and and certainly seeing some of the things that they've done there with with products like SignalR um, look amazingly cool. Uh, I, I guess it's a question of, of what sort of risks would translate in, into that space as well. Things like transport layer protections, things like the ability to manipulate um, queries or, or get in the middle of traffic. Uh, so look, it's it's honestly not something that I've paid much attention to yet, but I, I think as it starts to gain more and more prevalence, inevitably it'll come into question. But I've also not seen it popping up through the normal sort of news channels. I, I can't recall a time where I've seen a headline that's, you know, someone uh, has a WebSocket implementation that's leaked data. <laughs> it just doesn't <laughs> seem a feature. And that'll inevitably be partly because it doesn't have the same ubiquity as HTTP. But uh, evidently or, or anecdotally, it doesn't seem to have the same sort of vulnerability footprint either. Well, that's a good start, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it's a great way to kick off. Yeah. Um, and then one of the other things I, I wanted to make sure I brought up is I, we're, we're increasingly moving more and more into a world where basically you could look around you in a room and everything has an IP address and everything is talking to, to some server off somewhere, be it a server in your house or your phone or the, some service running in the cloud. Um, so I have to think that security around these kind of things is going to become you know more and more important on that, I, unless we... we devolve into a Skynet situation in the next couple of years. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so like, where do you, how do you, how do you view the, the current state of, uh, you know, what, what's now being coined as the, the internet of things? So it is, it is amazingly interesting. And I, in fact, I have a, a slide deck in front of me that I've, I've got to, to talk about at TechEd next week that touches on that. And I'm, I'm going to give you a quote that I think you'll enjoy as well. But um, the interesting thing about it is that there's a few factors that are making this a, a, a sort of really risky proposition. And one of them is the same sort of risk that we have with mobile apps insofar as the communication of the device is that much further out of sight. So, you know, we mentioned you can't see padlocks and SSL and that sort of thing. It sits just that little bit further behind uh, the veneer of the device. Um, so I have a set of those Wything scales, and I stand on them every morning, as you do <laughs> with the set of scales. But it then makes I have the same one. <laughs> okay, right. So we know how this works, right? It makes an HTTP slash HTTPS connection somewhere uh, back to a, an API. At the end of the day, it's sending your data back. Now, you know how that's securing the data. I don't know. It's certainly not as easy just to proxy that through Fiddler either. Uh, although I do talk about things like ARP poisoning uh, in that course, which uh, which would be how you get the data out of that. So there's that. And, and the other thing is, is that the devices and the whole sort of IoT movement is one of these really sort of hot topics where everyone is rushing stuff to market. And they're rushing crazy stuff to market. You know, things like the Happy Fork, which is a connected fork and measures how many bites you take. <laughs> um, I saw some chopsticks that do the same thing the other day. So uh, yay for cultural diversity. <laughs> um, the, the, the one, though, that I, that I love the most, and I use this, uh, as a good example, because it has had a vulnerability, is the connected toilet. And there is a, a company called Lixil uh, in Japan, and they make this toilet called Lixil Satis. 
And uh, you, you kind of got to see the screen grabs of, of the app to control this toilet because some of the, the icons that appear there, I, I can only speculate <laughs> on their meaning because <laughs> there is a lot of kanji <laughs> next to it. But the interesting thing is you've got this connected toilet and uh, they did actually have a security vulnerability um, which was disclosed last year. And, and the quote from Trustwave who disclosed this said that if this vulnerability was exploited, attackers could cause the unit to unexpectedly open, close the lid, activate the day or air drive functions causing discomfort or distress to user. <laughs> now, SQL injection... That's is, frightening. Well, that is entirely scary because the, the, the classic sort of attacks and you know losing your data is one thing, but someone activating the bidet on you is quite another class of attack. <laughs> so I'm worried about that. There's an injection joke in there somewhere, but I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> well, the last time I mentioned it, someone said that was a backdoor attack, but we put, might leave that one there as well. Uh, that'll... <laughs> Moving on. So, yeah, yes. So, I mean, what are what have you observed to be kind of the most common problems with uh, these IoT devices uh, that they're leaving leaving things exposed? Yeah, look, I think they're just not thinking about the the potential attack vectors is one, and the other thing is I don't know how much they're thinking about the the update path. So, there's another really good example uh, from a, a company called Lifex who make uh, these really funky light bulbs. Uh, and these light bulbs you can control with your smartphones. You can sort of control the color and the hue, and you can set the mood in your room. Uh, and very recently, they came out and said, um, um, in fact, I think it was some security researchers came out and said, look, uh, it just so happens that you can get the Wi-Fi credentials out of them. So, you know, you could drive past someone with LifeX light bulbs uh, and have them cough up the Wi-Fi credentials for your network. And I think the issue that raises in response to your question is... Uh, are we ready to, to start thinking about patching our light bulbs? <laughs> you know, this is, a, this is a new era where we've got to think about uh, technology that we maintain in, in a very different way. Now, Lifex came out and said they are not aware of any instances of this having been exploited. But I also wonder, you know, if, if we find, say, that the neighbour's been torrenting over our network are we going to go geez i wonder if it's those light bulbs <laughs> you know have my light bulbs <laughs> coughed up my credentials and we're not really at that point and of course the other thing to think about is that generally the life cycle of the thing and then the technology in the thing so if we think about sort of connected fridges for a moment um you know this, this has always sort of been the archetypal iot device and you expect to get maybe seven to ten years out of your fridge but how's it going to feel in seven to ten years when you've got today's operating system running on there and, and today's interfaces and APIs? I mean, it would be like going down to your fridge today and it's running Windows XP. <laughs> you know, it would just be, it'd be a scary thought because the cycles of these two things that have now become entwined are so different. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, and. Like you said, it, it's going to become more and more prevalent as, you know, more and more devices are connected. I mean, in, in my house, I, you know, we both have the scale and then, you know, I carry around a Fitbit that's always reporting mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. And I have, uh, I'm a home brewer, so of course I have a, a fermentation ah. fridge that has a, a temperature that, uh, a temperature gauge and a temperature controller on it that also goes and talks to a cloud service. So wh wherever I am, I can know what temperature my fermentation is doing and... You know, these are all very important things, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's it's always worth thinking about, you know, where what can talk to these devices as well. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I think we almost lose track of it. I, I was actually looking at a, a little app I have the other day that looks at all the addresses on my, my network. And I, I'm looking at it going, holy crap, I have 18 IP addresses on my network. This is at home. Like, where did we get 18 IP addresses? And it's like, well, there's two <laughs> Apple TVs and there's a Chromecast and then there's the scales. Um, and it, it, it just goes on and on and on. My remote control has got an IP address. <laughs> I've got a Logitech remote control. Uh, it, it's just sort so of... So the thing that controls the other things with IP addresses has an IP address. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And yet that's true too because I got a new amplifier the other day and the amplifier has an IP address. I'm not even quite sure why it has an IP address, but... You know, it, it, it came with a network connector, and I thought, well, that's probably a good idea. We'll, we'll plug that in. Um, so now there's another connector. Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, hey, I've got the space. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would love to kind of leave things with, um, well, for one, if you have any other like, fun stories or exploits you've seen in the wild, those are those always make for a good time. But I, even outside of that, I would, I would love to leave it on, um, you know, just a, a practical a way developers can take a practical approach to to checking the security of their apps and, and making sure that things are secure. You know, maybe some some good tools to to, to reach for if they want to to start investigating that. So, look, I'll sort of go back to the to the title of that course, uh, just because I think it really resonates with people, which is hack yourself first. So, go through and try and find vulnerabilities in your own things, in the way an attacker would. And you will probably find things that go well beyond the security realm as well when you start looking at the way your device and your apps communicate. Uh, and do look at other people's apps as well. Um, you know, maybe be a little bit responsible when you do. But I'll give you a really good example that I alluded to a little bit earlier that uh, is not strictly in the security space, but it will give you an idea of some of the things developers are missing. So I was looking for examples uh, to use in this, this talk I'm going to do next week about um, really excessive data use by apps because sometimes what we forget is that apps are massively inefficient or, or rather inefficient. And I pulled down the Evo Car Magazine app and this is a, a 25 megabyte app you get from the App Store and you pull it down and you put it on your iPad and then you can go and purchase magazines and then it will download them and you'll watch it. So I've purchased this the other day and I've opened it and my traffic's proxying and I've gone away and had dinner. I've come back an hour later and it's still downloading stuff. I'm going, what, what is this doing? It downloaded 1.8 gigabytes worth of data the first time I opened it I, over my web connection. And I'm thinking, if I open this on my, my data plan uh, on my mobile, that's basically my data plan gone. And then because our telcos here uh, wrought us on data charges, it's three cents for every megabyte after that. Now, I haven't even done the math, but that would have cost me a huge <laughs> amount of money if I had have opened that whilst connected on my, my data plan. Now, the only way I knew it did that is I proxied the traffic. And I, I've got to wonder, look, it's probably by design, but did the developers really go, well, hang on a second, let's just have a look at what this is doing now that we've built it. And I think if they had a seen that there's 1.8 gigabytes worth of zip files, and there was about another uh, 80 meg worth of JPEGs as well that came down, <laughs> Yeah, maybe that is not actually what we want to do. So you know, hack yourself first, proxy your traffic, look at your apps, look at other people's apps, and you'll get a pretty good sense of some of the things that are going wrong. Well, I think that's good advice for everyone. Um, uh, but thanks. I think that gives everyone a lot to chew on as well. But th thanks so much for, for coming on the show tonight, Troy. This is, uh, this is awesome. Yeah, my pleasure, Greg. It's been fun. 
All right. And uh, everyone stay safe and secure out there. And we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile.